Welcome to Roma's series on OEM updates with this week's session on COVID-19, Perspectives from Infectious Disease and Epidemiology. My name is Dr. Alia Khan, and I am today's moderator. WOMA is the Western Occupational and Environmental Medicine Association and a subcomponent of ACOM. We have designed these WOMA podcasts to be a tool and a benefit for WOMA members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians. The WOMA Education Committee members involved in planning this session and today's speaker have no relevant financial relationships to disclose. So summer is knocking on our door and people are itching to get out and enjoy themselves like pre-COVID times. Some parts of America are seeing their case numbers decline while others areas are seeing a rise, yet reopening continues to move forward. Our knowledge of SARS-CoV-2 has been changing dramatically as well as our understanding of the epidemiology. To help us sort through these updates, as well as look towards the future with COVID-19, we have Dr. Shruti Gohill here with me. Well, not physically, of course. Um, she's gonna help us understand where we are at this moment. Dr. Shruti Gohill is the Associate Medical Director of Epidemiology Infection Prevention, EIP, and Assistant Professor in Infectious Disease at University of California, Irvine. Dr. Goho obtained her medical degree and MPH from Tufts University. She completed her residency in internal medicine from University of California, Davis, and completed a clinical and research fellowship in infectious disease at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She has had multiple grants, including her current grant from the CDC, which is focused on multi-drug resistant organisms, which is a primary goal is to reduce empiric use of broad spectrum antibiotics. Dr. Gohill, welcome to Wilma's podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Great. So if you could just start off by giving us a quote-unquote state of the pandemic overview and what we've learned most recently regarding the behavior of SARS-CoV-2. Absolutely. It's an unprecedented time and really a, a pandemic for, for the ages, um, as everyone has really felt. And um course, the pandemic began uh, from all accounts at the end of 2019, uh, possibly earlier, we have yet to learn, uh, and has spread across the world now, uh, affecting millions um, of individuals and uh, uh, in the United States has uh, is now the country with the greatest number of infected individuals and the highest overall absolute count for death. Um, we've learned a lot uh, as Time has passed. We're clear into May at this point, and many um, communities across the nation have seen COVID, have seen it surge uh, and either plateau or start to regress, um, notably New York. And uh, now we're in a place on the West Coast. Oftentimes, infections come from the east and then uh, march the globe westward, as every year happens with influenza. Um, and here on the West Coast, we Begin with our first case, uh, in, um, actually of the nation that was detected in Washington, uh, and parts of Northern California. And now here we are in Southern California, um, with a rise in cases steadily, uh, through, uh, areas like Los Angeles, um, and in places like Orange County, who, despite having had rules in place for social distancing, um, we have definitely flattened the curve. Uh, but clearly, uh, stubbornly, uh, the coronavirus still um, persists. 
Thank you for that update. Um, and can you also tell us how concerned we need to, do, to be about asymptomatic spread, especially as many are beginning to head back to work while even though we're still screening for symptoms? Absolutely. It's something that is, um, I think, really, really important topic um, for all of us to understand. When we think about asymptomatic infections, and you were talking to an infectious disease physician, one of the first things we think about is, well, of course, uh, the common cold uh, often can be spread during uh, a day or two, uh, perhaps before you even realize consciously that you are sick. Uh, influenza famously is estimated to be asymptomatic in individuals as high as 20 to 30%. How much of that is transmitted during that phase, we don't know. Uh, and we don't know the nature of what asymptomatic means in influenza, but we know that that is a phenomenon in infectious disease. Measles is another wonderful example of um, virus that uh, can be infectious before you, before a person detects that they are sick. Um, so the news about asymptomatic by itself, that, that is not news to an infectious, shouldn't be news to an infectious disease physician. The question really here with COVID, when you're dealing with a novel pandemic, this sort of asymptomatic potentiality becomes intolerable because you are trying to stop the spread of a pandemic. And, um, and then that becomes really, really uh, an important component of our thinking. But it also is inciting a, uh, quite a bit of fear in, in people in how do you deal with, um, with that. And uh, I would say that overall, um, the people who are symptomatic, truly symptomatic cough, shortness of breath, or even just a headache, fatigue. It's all about how you define the symptoms. Early on, CDC um, had uh, recognized uh, SARS as being uh, something that causes fever, cough, and respiratory disease. And that's how they define their cases. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to define the cases that way, then, of course, you're not going to pick up the person who had milder symptoms like headache or a little bit of fatigue or myalgias, you know, muscle aches. So when the case def definition is restricted, you will find less people. You'll call the rest of the people asymptomatic, perhaps, right? So that becomes mm -hmm. uh, sort of um, uh, really problematic for surveillance definitions. CDC, World Health Organization, many of the early studies that came out from China and Asia um, at large, you know, we're reporting things like 20% asymptomatic on surveillance data. Um, and that's uh, if you are not counting the population that is fully symptomatic, then uh, you're going to exaggerate that claim, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's one problem. <laughs> the other issue with this asymptomatic thing and trying to get a, a handle on it is that um, the PCR is what we use to test for COVID to test for the genome um, presence of the uh, virus uh, DNA in the um, system, in whatever sample. And you can catch, PCR famously can catch, it's a molecular test that can catch dead or alive virus. It doesn't tell you anything about the viability of the virus. And so um, what we have learned is that coronavirus um, PCR can stay positive for up to six weeks six to eight weeks in a person. So you could be good and done in, with your infection. And mm -hmm. then you get tested, you know, four weeks later. 
And then you're positive. Does that mean you're spreading still? Does that mean you're still shedding live virus and spreading? So this causes even more concern. And then also uh, will inflate your asymptomatic case, right? Um, so um, when an epidemiologist coupled with an ID person takes a look at those numbers, we are uh, uh, really wondering what is the true asymptomatic rate and how, and then translate that to really how many of them are really tra- transmitting to each other. So that um, I think that number is far lower than what we are reading in the media or in um, high high level journals. And what about the role of masking? So CDC recommends universal masking for anyone older than age of two, especially in the light of what we know or what we don't know about asymptomatic spread. Yeah, it's so hard. Um, the idea of masking is that on the one hand, um, when you don't know what's happening uh, and you really want to do everything to shave off every bit of risk, uh, you know, we don't want to live in a world of, of, of like any risk. You know, we've come as a culture to a place where we really want no risk <laughs> and, um, right. you know, as, or as little as possible. And I think that plays into it. And so if you're going to go into it with the idea that it is worth, um, at the, uh, you know, at the public health level to shave off every bit of risk, which I do think in the absence of vaccines, in the absence, you know, with a truly nascent, non-immune population just, um, uh, you know, waiting to get infected effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think there's value to masking, but it needs to be done correctly. I think it needs to be done um, in a way that uh, doesn't cause you to feel like you have license, your freedom to do whatever you want with your hands and then not clean them, right? You have to do it part and parcel with hand hygiene, otherwise a mask is useless. And you've got to wear it actually to cover it. What I've learned is, you know, we see a lot of people wearing masks uh, sometimes, um, you know, just around. And if you look at them closely, they're doing something funny. You know, they're either adjusting it or they're, they're mm-hmm. whole, you know, wearing it right underneath their nose on their mouth and not covering their nose and breathing in everything that's on the external surface of the mask, right, and rendering it utterly useless. Um, you know, I famously, I just happened to turn a corner and somebody who was wearing a mask took, you know, just yanked the mask off for a second to sneeze, <laughs> which <laughs> utterly, you know, sort of defeated the purpose. So, so yeah, with everything that we put into place, we must do it correctly. Do, do I think that it's absolutely necessary? Uh, if there's no one around you and you're, you know, six feet uh, uh, away from everybody, you know, it's really the social distancing that matters to me more than anything else. And if you're going to be within somebody's orbit, then wearing a mask, sure, is protective to um, to to both people. I, I do think that that is that is right. Um, but how much what what how much are you really gaining? I don't think we know that yet. There's some really nice, interesting data I could go through if you if you think there's time for it. But um, sure, I mean, you could summarize it. I think that would be helpful. Yeah, sure, sure. What are masks for? I think that would be a good way to. Um, we know that people who are symptomatic are the real spreaders. That that really should be made more and more clear. And sometimes when you're asymptomatic, you some of those people may be people who don't recognize it, but they actually do have symptoms that that time. So uh, fine, say they're just on the verge of getting 
conscious uh, on their symptoms, um, and they're wearing a mask. The masks are there to actually protect people from spreading their germs, not from receiving them. Yes, of course, having a physical barrier in front of you if somebody else is coughing. Sure. Does that help you? Sure. I, I, I'm sure it does help you. But really, the data is that um, it's, the, it's the source person. You can drop their um, community, their, their, the amount of virus in the air around them by logs, by just having them wear a mask. So we do like the idea of masking. I do think that people who are symptomatic absolutely should be masked. Um, people who are asymptomatic uh, right now, not knowing enough, I think it's a conservative measure. I do think that it's a reasonable one, especially in poorly ventilated, um, you know, you're indoors uh, and you, uh, you know, are, are at risk of being within many people's orbits. You should wear a mask. Why not? Well, thank you for clarifying that. I think I can pick your brain on this all day, but in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you um, one more question or delve into one other topic is, so as occupational medicine physicians, many of us are utilizing the CDC return to work guidelines. So in your opinion, you know, what would you consider the caveats? Um, what do you think we need to take into consideration um, for people who are symptomatic, test or test positive for COVID? Um, and what about people who test positive but are asymptomatic? You know, thinking about people, especially in the healthcare setting. Um, yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's yeah. there's some nuances there. So if you could just kind of delve into that a bit, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, very, very important. It's probably the talk of the town. We work closely with our occupational department here um, at UC Irvine, um, together with, uh, you know, I represent epidemiology and infection prevention, of course. And so we come uh, at it from two different angles, but um, have to work together because this is no man's land in some ways with regard to data. And really the linchpin for me is this idea of that PCR positivity being um, persistently positive up to four to, you know, eight weeks. Um, if that's going to be the case, uh, you really should not um, be acting only on PCR. And the CDC um, sort of appropriately, you know, at first they were talking about a two, you know, either you can do a two test strategy with a PCR, um, two PCR negative, uh, mm-hmm. and then send somebody back um, to work, or you could do the symptom screening, um, symptoms based um, uh, process, of course. And uh, for a little while there, they just for about a week and a half, they had more strongly favored the test based strategy. Uh, and then, and then quickly, uh, reverse that and, um, realize that actually it's the symptoms that matter the most in this, um, scenario. So if you find an infected individual, uh, maybe you're in cluster workup or maybe you found them on screening because they actually were symptomatic and they're out, um, for 14 days, um, uh, or sorry, they're out for 10 days from their first symptom and they really, really are asymptomatic. They're not going back to an oncology ward or somewhere where there's severe immunocompromise or something. Uh, do we feel comfortable returning a healthcare worker like that without testing them? Sure, absolutely, um, if they're symptom-free. Uh, and we have not seen or heard of, it's not been studied to my understanding, although everybody's really interested in studying it, um, we have not heard of anybody having returned to work who whose symptoms had resolved and then they transmit to 
a, a coworker or a patient. We, we've not seen that. And we've seen a fair number of healthcare workers, uh, like every hospital, um, who've, who've come in with, um, COVID and, and, and successfully returned about 80% of ours, um, and not had that issue. So I, I think that, um, this idea of asymptomatic, um, on the front end, where we started this conversation of asymptomatic spread mm-hmm. uh, in early parts of the disease, suppose you know that's one thing. But asymptomatic after you're known to be a carrier, you know, to have gone through the COVID experience personally. After that, after those symptoms are gone, you really do have, I think, a different type of asymptomatic at that point, and and returning people safely is just fine. Um, the only caveat, I will say, it, we do work closely with OCHELP to assess where patients, uh, where healthcare workers are actually going to be deployed. So if they are in a high-risk setting, say bone marrow transplant, because there isn't enough information out there, uh, I would be a little bit more conservative. So we do have a different sort of approach for for that. What about because I mean now some places are testing those who are truly asymptomatic. Right? They they've never had symptoms of COVID, and if we have a a true asymptomatic person who is positive for COVID, what would you recommend we do with that person? You know what? Um, we are actually keeping them out of out of um, out of the hospital for 14 days. Okay, and then um, either no either one of two. Po- Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to ask if we test them again or we just let the 14 days go by and make sure we don't develop symptoms. Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly the point is that could these people be potentially pre-symptomatic? And, and uh, usually if you're going to be test positive, you should develop it within a couple of days, right? But, um, mm-hmm. you know, the 14 days uh, is, a, is sort of, you know, using the, the incubation period. But in this application i'm not sure it's the best application because again you could find somebody who is who passed their infection and just persistently positive with their pcr or you could have somebody um who really is going to develop symptoms in which case they would like they would declare themselves but that true asymptomatic person without knowing up front what's going to happen to them if they stay asymptomatic for a full 14 days you feel somewhat you know sort of comfortable that um at least you've um you've managed to stave off any potential transmission. So you stated that, you know, you would feel comfortable returning someone who was completely asymptomatic um, after 10 days if they tested positive for, for COVID and they originally have symptoms. What about those who have persistent anosmia? Oh, yes. Pathophysiology matters um, to me a lot because it really is um, the basis for Every understanding everything. So anosmia, we of course don't know yet fully how COVID may be different from prior experience. But let's sit on the uh, experience of infectious disease on anosmia, and we can say that um, post-inflammatory or virus-associated peri-infection uh, inflammation of the nerves involved in um, in the nose. For that, that cause anosmia is a phenomenon known to happen before COVID. 
ever came on the scene. Now, COVID's rates appear to be much higher. I can't tell if it's because people are just saying it more and, and, and uh, declaring any, anything that they have. And we're finally looking at it more hard than times past, or if it's really, really a, a thing. But, um, I definitely have been interviewing patients and healthcare workers where it is clear they have anosmia. Um, and it really is a, is a, appears to be a real sign. So that is an inflammatory process. I would not expect anosmia to be, um, to sort of regress like the other symptoms would. Um, once damage is done to a nerve, there takes, you know, we ha- it has its own timeline to get better. So I wouldn't use anosmia. I don't have any data to back me up on that. Um, but that, that is not just based on pathophysiology alone. I wouldn't consider that one, um, as a major one for return of healthcare workers. Well, that was very helpful. Um, Dr. Goho, thank you for providing us with the most up-to-date information, which I know many of us will find useful. On behalf of the WOMA Education Committee, the WOMA Board of Directors, and myself as moderator of this podcast, I want to sincerely thank our speaker, Dr. Shruti Gohil, and also thank those of you who listened. The goal of these WOMA podcasts is to update you on a topic of current interest to occupational medicine. We know that this topic raises many more questions, and we hope that this information will generate further interaction beyond this podcast. You can check out our prior podcast on the WOMA website and stay tuned for our next podcast with Dr. Heather Lampel. We'll be discussing dermatology issues related to COVID. This concludes today's podcast. Thank you.